Our passage comes from Acts 16 and beginning in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of that very hour. But when her owners saw that the hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments, the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is God's word. You may be seated. We continue our, our series of sermons on the book of Acts where we uh, I've been choosing different conversion stories, and we came to chapter 16 that has three conversion stories, and they're all different. And we looked at Lydia last week, we're looking at this demon-possessed slave girl today, and then we'll look at the Philippian jailer next week. But a fascinating chapter. It's almost like Luke just can't wait to tell us what's going on in this ministry. He recently joined Paul in the missionary team, and, and it's like he's just going to tell us everything that, that he saw, all the remarkable things he saw happening. And these are the three conversions that he records for us in this chapter. Now, this particular story is about Christ's ability to release a person from oppression and slavery. So I want to look at our passage under three headings. First, let's look at the need for freedom. Secondly, at the nature of freedom, specifically gospel freedom. And finally, the way to freedom. So the need for it, the nature of it, and the way to it. Okay, let's look at verse 16. Luke writes, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, this girl is doubly enslaved. She's possessed by a demon, and she is a slave exploited by her owners for financial gain. They're using her and her demonic, the spiritual ability to be able to tell the future or, or have insight into particular situations, clearly a demonic thing that is going through her. And so her owners are using her to make money. So she's sort of a medium, sort of a fortune teller you can go to and, and speak with, and all the money is going to her master's. It's important to see that there are two kinds of slavery here. She is spiritually oppressed by a demon. She's apart from God. She's under control of this, of this spirit. And she's also oppressed economically, physically. She is property of someone else, and someone else is making money by exploiting her. I think this description of, of this double slavery, these two types of slavery and oppression, is true of any person who's outside of Christ. 
Anybody who's not connected to God through Christ is spiritually enslaved by sin. They're not able to do what God wants them to do. They're not able to feel or think or respond to God the, the way God wants them to do. There's spiritual oppression. But they're also enslaved in other ways. And we'll, we'll talk about it as we go on. The point I'm making here is that outside of Christ, without Christ, there is no real freedom. These, these two types of oppression cannot be broken outside of Christ completely. Now, let me give you some examples of that. Think about our culture today. We live in a culture that is um, perhaps, arguably, uh, the culture that is most obsessed with freedom. I can't think of another culture in history that is so focused on, on realizing personal freedom, being completely free, being completely who I want to be, being completely authentic. These are all marks of our culture today. And yet, we also live in a culture that cannot seem to break free from various enslavements. Now, on the one hand, we are as focused on freedom as we've ever been. On the other hand, the case can be made that we are as enslaved as we've ever been. How do you, how do you reconcile this tension? We say we're about freedom. You, you, all you hear around, around us is this, this quest, this call to personal freedom. And yet, we're all dealing with all sorts of enslavements. Take addiction, for example, from pornography to opioids to screens to food to alcohol. These addictions are, are destroying us. They're destroying us. Financial debt is controlling many lives beginning in college. I just saw a commercial for an app that promises to go through your financial records and discover for you all the monthly subscriptions that you're paying for but not using. Now, it's amazing that we need an app to figure it out, isn't it? Isn't it amazing that we don't know how much money we're spending on what and that we're, using, we're spending money on things we're not using and we don't even know that? Isn't that enslavement? Doesn't, that, doesn't it change your life? Doesn't it control how you live? With the recent revelations about Facebook, many of our suspicions about the damaging influence of social media patterns and algorithms have been confirmed. That's enslavement, isn't it? There are so many things in our culture and in our lives that control us, that oppress us, that shape our choices, our emotions, completely outside of ourselves, and yet we keep saying we are free. We want to be free. We're on this quest to personal realization, self-realization, and, and freedom. Now, we can talk about all sorts of other things, ideological control, racial strife, work uh, patterns, gender dysphoria, sexual identity, and a million other things that hinder our pursuit of freedom. So in a culture obsessed with freedom, we feel enslaved and oppressed. And, I, and the statistics bear it out. There is a feeling of oppression. There is a feeling of enslavement in a culture that is completely focused on freedom. Why? It's a fair question to ask. Why is it that in pursuit of freedom, we seem to become more and more enslaved? Well, the Bible's answer is this. Because where there is no spiritual freedom, 
other types of freedom become elusive too. The Bible teaches that if spiritual freedom is not prioritized, we become prone to all kinds of other enslavements. John 8 says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Meaning that if the Son doesn't set you free, you cannot be free indeed. If you don't have the spiritual experience of freedom in Christ, you will experience lots of other oppressions, injustices, and enslavements in your life, and you'll be powerless to really break free from them. Now, I'll come back to this point, but I want to ask a question that I would imagine most of you careful Bible readers ask, and that is, why was Paul so annoyed with the demon that was proclaiming the truth? Have you thought about that? This was my week's question. You know, I was trying to figure this out. The demon through the slave girl is proclaiming true things. You know, she's saying, these are servants of the Most High God. And they are. They proclaim the way to salvation. And they are. And she does it every day. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to have someone else, another voice that affirms the message of the gospel? Why is Paul getting progressively annoyed, more and more annoyed, to the point where he casts out the demon and stops that proclamation of the truth? She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, that's true, who proclaim to you the way of salvation, that's true. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It's a fair question, isn't it? Here's my theory. I think Paul is annoyed with the confusion of Christ's power and demonic powers. The gospel seems to be put in the same category as demonic divination. In other words, the impression is being made that Christ can be helpful as well as a fortune-telling session can be helpful. It seems like the demon and Christ are on the same team and use the same kind of power for people's good. Now, a newcomer to the gospel, somebody who's just observing Paul and hearing the slave girl proclaim this thing that she's saying, would conclude that we all need freedom, we all need healing, we all need power, uh, and there's this power that's available through Christ, as preached by Paul, or through the slave girl, as possessed by the demon, as, and I can go to her and pay money and get what I can get from Paul, potentially for free. By casting the demon out and liberating the slave girl in the name of Jesus, Paul shows that the power of the gospel stands in opposition to all other spiritual powers that only the gospel brings freedom, while all other powers oppress and enslave. We need to be very careful in the way we present the gospel, in the way we compare the gospel to other ideologies, to other views, to other ideas around us. The gospel is an either-or proposition. It's not a both-and proposition. It's an either-or. Acts 26, uh, 18, Paul 
in Acts 26, 18, Paul recalls his conversion and his call to ministry, and he recalls that Christ called him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The way Paul thinks of his ministry is, I am calling people to leave darkness and come into the light, to transition from the power of Satan to God. Those who have not believed in Jesus, in Paul's view, in the Bible's view, in the Christian view, those who have not believed in Jesus are in darkness and are under the power of Satan. The gospel is not just another option. You can go to a medium to get some helpful information for your life, or you can go to church to hear some other helpful materials. The way Scripture portrays the gospel is the only way to freedom. It's the only way to experience what God has for humanity. The gospel brings light. The gospel releases the power of God, which brings actual freedom. When my daughter Paulina shares the gospel with her friends at school, she sometimes puts it very bluntly. She would sometimes ask, are you with Satan or are you with God? Very blunt, but very true. Very true. That is exactly the choice according to Scripture. You cannot be in between. There are no other options. If you are not with God, you are under Satan's control. If you are not free in Christ, you're not really free. And if you don't have the spiritual freedom of Christ, you will be prone to all sorts of other enslavements that you will not be able to break free from. If we are enslaved spiritually to sin, to Satan, to the world, we'll never be able to really see freedom for what it is or enslavement for what it is, less, much less break free from that. Our need for freedom can only be satisfied through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why I think Paul is casting the demon out, even though the demon is saying something that's true. He doesn't want confusion. He doesn't want people to say, well, there are different ways to handle enslavement. There's different ways to handle sin. There's one way, and that way isn't Jesus, and don't confuse it with anything else. Don't put the gospel on par with anything else. Paul gets annoyed because he doesn't want the power of Christ to be confused with any other power. Christ's power liberates other powers enslave. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones shared a story when he was a pastor in, in South Wales in the 30s, I believe. He shared a story about a woman that was a medium, much like the girl in our passage, using demonic powers to make money. In fact, she was paid a lot of money for that period of time for her position in life to to host these kinds of sessions and meetings for the local spiritist society. One morning, one Sunday morning, she was ill, she's feeling ill, and she, she stayed home, didn't go to the seance she was supposed to organize, and she saw people going to church outside, outside her window, people, and she felt something. So she responded to that feeling, went to church, heard the gospel, and was saved. And then later, much later, Lloyd-Jones, who was preaching at that church, asked her what she felt that Sunday. 
What made her come to church? What made her turn to Christ? This is what she said. She said, The moment I entered your chapel I sat and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a power. I was conscious of the same sort of power as I was accustomed to in our spiritist meetings. But there was one big difference. I had a feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power. Now this is a person who is feeling things in the spiritual realm, who was under the control of Satan, and now is, her heart is being open to a different kind of power. But they're not the same type of powers. One is a clean power that brings freedom, and another one is a power that brings enslavement and oppression. And she could tell the difference, and she turned to Jesus and was saved because of a clean power that was coming into her life through the church. Paul believes, and we believe, that only the clean power of Christ can bring true freedom. Now let's consider the kind of freedom that Christ's power can bring. What is the nature of the freedom brought by the gospel? Because this is a gospel freedom. We have to define it. It's not like some other ideas of freedom in the world. Now look at what happened in our passage. First, the girl is freed from demonic oppression. She immediately experiences spiritual freedom. She transitions from darkness to light, from Satan to God, and that is conversion. It happens immediately. God's power is flowing through her, and she's free from a demon. But now, other kinds of enslavements are being disrupted in her life. Verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. The gospel immediately starts to disrupt economic exploitation. In fact, the very structure of pagan life in Philippi is under attack by the gospel. Now, the masters know that. They know that this idea, this new freedom, this clean power that's coming into the city is going to cause all sorts of changes. They're already losing money because their slave is no longer demon-possessed and she can't uh, do divination and stuff like that. They're sensing other things are going to happen. More people get converted. Our whole economic structure, our, our whole uh, structure of oppression is going to fall. They know that instinctively and they push back. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. They take action because they know what's coming. The gospel is disrupting things. In fact, the gospel is always disrupting all kinds of oppression. Now, let me make two statements, give you two principles about the nature of gospel freedom, and especially about the relationship between spiritual freedom and other kinds of freedom. First principle is this. Spiritual freedom always leads to other kinds of freedom. Spiritual freedom always leads to other kinds of freedom. Now, I already pointed out that the slave girl's conversion has challenged her physical and economic slavery. In fact, it's affecting the city now. When the gospel brings spiritual freedom into a person's life, many of their enslavements are exposed and they begin to experience liberation in specific areas of life. It's true. Many of our testimonies are about that. When I became a Christian, the Lord released me from my addiction to pornography. 
my spiritual freedom was followed by sexual freedom, by emotional freedom. And many of our stories are like that. You come to Christ, you experience freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, you get connected to God, and now you start noticing all these other things in your life, and the Lord is exposing that, and you're saying, oh, but you're enslaved here too. Here is oppression. And you start dealing with that, and God's power actually begins to free you from those things. A new relationship with Christ changes our relationships with food and technology and work and politics and sexuality and ethnicity. Everything becomes new, and you start experiencing different degrees of freedom. One of the ministries of our church is helping people budget and pay off their debts. Financial freedom often follows spiritual freedom. Not always, but often it happens. When the gospel takes root in a community, like it does in Philippi here in our text, all sorts of enslavements are exposed, and Christians get involved. Christians actually start bringing that gospel freedom into all kinds of areas of life. For example, many rehab centers are run by Christians. Why? Well, that's an expression of gospel freedom. Those who have experienced spiritual freedom, now they can see all these enslavements in the community, and they're saying, let's help with that. Let's help free people from these enslavements. Many hospitals in this country were started by Christian churches and still bear Christian names. Why? Well, a Christian who is spiritually free now seeks physical freedom and physical healing. The civil rights movement of the 60s was fueled by Christian ideas and led not exclusively but largely by Christian ministers. There's a trajectory in the gospel, and the trajectory is toward complete freedom. When you come to Christ, you experience spiritual freedom, and you realize that you are now on the trajectory towards complete freedom. There's an internal drive toward freedom in our spiritual condition. Now, of course, it doesn't mean, it does not mean that we pursue freedom in all areas with the same commitment and vigor. We have blind spots, certainly. Some enslavements take longer for us to notice and address as Christians, whether it's internally in the church or in our hearts or externally in our community. Sometimes we misuse the gospel, to justify oppression. All of that is true. But the trajectory of the gospel is toward freedom, and it cannot really be changed. Spiritual freedom always leads to other kinds of freedom. That's the first principle. The second principle is this. Spiritual freedom, this freedom in Christ, gives us resources to endure temporary enslavements. Spiritual freedom gives us resources to endure temporary enslavements. A Christian, a person who is free in Christ, can be free while being enslaved. A Christian can be free while being oppressed. A Christian can be, can be free while actually limited in some ways. Now look at Paul and Silas. They accept imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. They accept a temporary enslavement because they are free in Christ. 
Their spiritual freedom is empowering them to endure suffering and oppression. We'll look at it next week in much more detail. In some ways, gospel, the gospel redefines our understanding of freedom because it prioritizes spiritual freedom over other kinds of freedom. So a Christian can say, because I am spiritually free, I can endure certain kinds of enslavement and oppression. Let me give you one analogy and then one, one illustration to help us understand these principles. The analogy is about our spiritual and physical health. I hope this is helpful because it does have to do with freedom and the dynamics of the Christian life, but it also has to do with physical and spiritual and the inter interaction of spiritual health and physical health. A Christian is renewed spiritually at conversion. You come to Christ, there is spiritual renewal. You're a new person, you're a new creation. And the Holy Spirit now keeps working on your spiritual growth and spiritual health throughout your life. Your spiritual health inevitably leads to improvements in physical health. A spiritually healthy person tends to eat better, tends to have a better work-rest balance, tends to deal with stress better. Now, I'm not saying that's true for everybody. I'm not saying it's true in every case and there's a certain progression for everybody. That's not true. But in general, when you become a spiritually healthy person, you become healthier in other parts of your life, including your physical health. You give up certain vices. You start sleeping better because you're more at peace. Those kinds of things happen and you become healthier physically as well as spiritually. We see the trajectory of freedom rooted in the spiritual, but inevitably affecting the physical. However, Christians still get cancer. Christians experience disability. Christians get injured in car accidents. And here's where the gospel provides incredible spiritual resources to deal with physical pain and limitations. A Christian can actually experience a season of joy in the midst of a prolonged illness, for example. A Christian can find meaning in accidents. A Christian can appreciate disability. Now, these things don't make sense unless you have a foundational spiritual health and a spiritual freedom. That spiritual freedom allows you to, on the one hand, experience physical freedom and physical health. On the other hand, it allows you to bear with and endure enslavements and unhealthy things in the physical world as well. The trajectory leads to full health physical as well as spiritual. When the Lord returns, we will be whole. We're not going to become purely spiritual. We're just going to become whole. Our bodies, our emotions, our relationships, our culture, everything is going to be made whole and perfect and real and true, and it will be complete. But until then, we live in this tension of the gospel bringing more and more freedom into our lives and yet allowing us to endure temporary enslavements. Now that's the analogy. Here's the illustration. The illustration is about the spread of the gospel 
among the African slaves in America. You know that historians and sociologists struggle to explain how the faith and the religion of slave masters became the faith and religion of slaves. There's something that's very unusual about that. Because Christianity was used to justify cruel violence and slavery and oppression of a particular group of people. It was absolutely used that way. That's one of the misuses of the gospel, to justify oppression. Slaves were forbidden from worshiping, many, many of them. Many slave owners thought that if a slave becomes a Christian, then they would become a brother or a sister. They would have to be treated equally. They would have to be released from slavery. And so they wouldn't preach to slaves. They wouldn't encourage conversion and baptism. There's all sorts of stuff that's, that's entangled in this. And Christianity had to be seen as oppressive, had to be seen as part of the system, as part of the, the, the slave owner's justification for cruelty and violence. And yet, we know historically without any question that many, many slaves became believers. Many slaves became genuine Christians. And the amazing thing that was happening on plantations is that slaves who were forbidden to worship, they were forbidden to gather for worship, would actually do that. They would find places and marshes and thickets, what they called hush harbors, where they would quietly worship the Lord, knowing that if they were caught, they would be whipped, sometimes killed. And yet, they would worship the same God that the slave owners said justified their oppression and violence. How can that happen? How can a secular historian or sociologist explain, explain that? I don't know. I don't think they can because they don't know the spiritual power of the gospel. There's another factor in all of this that doesn't make sense historically and sociologically, but it does make sense spiritually. The accounts of the worshipers, of the slaves worshiping the Lord in those hush harbors, describe the experience of spiritual freedom and the hope of ultimate liberation as the reasons for their faith in Christ. The African-American Christian experience illustrates the two principles of gospel freedom. One, that spiritual freedom in Christ exposes and ultimately leads to abolishing slavery in America. As the gospel is worked out, spiritual freedom brings other kinds of freedom and puts pressure on the culture. And the second principle is that spiritual freedom in Christ gives incredible resources to endure temporal injustice and oppression. Listen to one writer describing the experience of spiritual freedom by a former slave, Josiah Henson. Josiah Henson said he was transported with delicious joy. What a, what a great phrase. I was transported with delicious joy when he heard a sermon from the book of Hebrews that said, Christ tasted death for every man. He exclaimed, Oh, the blessedness and sweetness of feeling that I was loved. 
This writer comments, such experiences were so real that nothing masters did or said could shake their Christian confidence. Incredible resources of the gospel coming into, into incredible suffering, incredible oppression, and given these people the ability to become and be Christians even though they're still enslaved and oppressed. How can you explain that? Spiritual freedom, spiritual hope, and yes, eventually it works itself out in actual freedom and physical freedom, but until then, there's a spiritual experience that is so real that it overrides those other enslavements. And this brings us to our final point. How can we get this gospel freedom? If it is this powerful thing, unlike any other, this, this clean power that can change a person, how can we get it? Now look at verse 18. There's an explicit description of how this freedom comes into our lives. Paul commands the demonic spirit to leave the slave girl in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, not in the name of religion, not in the name of Paul, in the name of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who can set us free. It is his power that can bring freedom. Now, when, when Jesus was starting his public ministry in Luke 4, he starts it by going to a synagogue and reading a passage from Isaiah 61 that we read for call to worship. So go with me to Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. In the beginning of his ministry, Jesus lays out his platform, and he quotes from Isaiah 61. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to liberate he came to set us free. He came to give us a new kind of clean power to break us out of our addictions, out of our enslavements. And the primary addiction, the primary enslavement is a spiritual one. And he does that immediately when he comes into your life. But how does he accomplish this liberation? We have a hint in our passage. The slave girl's freedom came at the cost of Paul and Silas's imprisonment. They were put in bondage so that the girl could be set free. And that is the essence of the gospel message. Jesus gave up his freedom to restore ours. God imprisoned himself in the human nature. God lived a life under the oppressive rule of Rome under the oppressive religion of the Pharisees, rejected and abandoned and slandered by his own family and friends. Scripture says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A better translation is a form of a slave. 
And then they bound and they nailed him to the cross where he died exhausted from the beatings, dehydrated, no longer able to push himself up to take another breath. That's limitation. That's enslavement. That's bondage. And what's worse is that his experience on the cross also included spiritual suffering, not just physical, but spiritual suffering. He was punished by God for all our sins so we can be forgiven. Scripture says that he was cursed. He was cursed by God so we can be blessed by God. He was rejected so we could be accepted. This is how freedom comes into our lives. It's through the cross of Christ where he was put in bondage so we can be liberated. And on the third day, on the third day, our Jesus, our liberator, our savior, rose in victory over all our slave masters. The empty tomb is the starting point of that freedom trajectory. You have to start there. You have to see the accomplishments of Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb are now offered to us to free us, to liberate us, to give us a new, clean kind of power to live by. The resurrection of Jesus declares that all who identify with him, all who connect themselves to him, all who say, I'm with him, I'm following him, I'm in him, I'm connected to him, anybody who does that is free from the fear of death, is free from the power of the world, is free from the control of the flesh, and most importantly, is free from the condemnation by God. What is the way to freedom? Well, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We can never be free, now or in eternity, unless we bow our knees to the Lord who became a slave for us. So let me finish with three application questions. Number one, are you on the trajectory of freedom? Have you been transferred from the darkness of sin to the light of God's grace, from the power of Satan to God? Do you believe in Jesus who died and rose for you? Because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Are you a Christian? Second application question. This is for those who are his disciples already. We've been walking with him. We've experienced spiritual freedom. The question to us is, are you progressing on this trajectory of freedom? Galatians 5 says, For freedom Christ has set, set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Are you submitting to a yoke of slavery? Is there something in your life today that needs to be brought under the influence of the gospel? Do you see an addiction? Do you see an enslavement in your life that needs to be addressed with the power of the gospel so you can be further sanctified and experience a greater degree of freedom through Christ? Or do you see an area of injustice or oppression in someone else's life or in our community that you need to address and bring the gospel to speak into that? 
And the final question. If you are in a season of suffering and pain, you're experiencing lots of limitations, you feel in bondage by cancer, by a particular family dysfunction, by financial difficulties, are you relying on the spiritual resources of the gospel to endure this temporal enslavement? When he returns, everything will be made new and everything will be made whole. But until then, are you trusting in that hope? And are you relying that Jesus is here, present with you, to sustain you by his wonderful grace until he returns?